Happy 2019. I know I'm a little, I'm about six days late. I run a little slow, but I want to thank you again for joining us this morning. I want to encourage you now, grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 17. Uh, And if you don't have a paper copy or a digital copy of God's Word, right there in front of you uh, in the pew rack is a a Bible. I want to encourage you to pick it up and turn with us into the, the fourth gospel there in the New Testament. As we begin a new series this morning, coming directly out of John 17, we, we entitled it One. No fewer than three times in John chapter 17, we see Jesus say something along the lines of, I pray, Father, that they would be one even as you and I are one. And so that is uh, why we named this series One. Uh, over the next Uh, Probably seven weeks, we are going to talk about biblical unity. What is it? How to maintain it? What are the enemies of biblical unity? Uh, This morning, I can go ahead and tell you, uh, we are going to spend two weeks in John 17. Uh, You actually have the whole outline in front of you, so you might just want to tuck it in your Bible, and, and that way you're all set for next week as we do the back half of that outline. Uh... But before we dive into this morning about what is biblical unity, uh, we want to spend maybe a couple of minutes of saying what biblical unity isn't. And to do that, I want to use the words of a uh, well-known pastor that you're probably familiar with. His name is Pastor Chuck Swindoll. Uh, Swindoll, in writing on this, says, quote, Unity is not a union. A union has an affiliation with others, but no common bond that makes them one in heart. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity has everyone looking and thinking alike. Unity is not being unanimous. Being unanimous means to have complete agreement across the board. And so I I think uh, Pastor Swindoll does a very good job of describing what unity isn't. But it still leaves us with that burning question of what is biblical unity? And to do that, we're going to study Jesus' high priestly prayer. uh, Specifically starting in verse 11 and, and going through 23. But the one big thing this morning is simply this. That biblical unity is spirit empowered and it is proof that we belong to God. So let's look at it together. John chapter 17, I'm going to begin in verse 11. And ask if you're able, would you stand as we honor God's word? And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 
As thou hast uh, sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me have I given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Let's pray together. Father, we again thank you for just the privilege of coming into your house to worship through music, and now through a study of your word. And God, I pray that you would eliminate all distractions from our mind. That you would hear, help us to hear clearly what your spirit will say. And so, Father, we humbly ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing is that biblical unity is spirit-empowered. And it is proof that we belong to God. And so this morning we want to look at the first two principles of what is biblical unity. Well, first off, biblical unity is a picture of the Trinity. We see it there in verse 11 and then 20 and 21. Uh, you know, one of the most difficult theological concepts for people to wrap their minds around is the doctrine of the Trinity. How exactly can it be one God eternally existent in three persons of the Father, Son, in the Holy Spirit. And we struggle to comprehend the Trinity because we simply don't understand. Our minds aren't able to really grasp the glorious truths of everything that God is. But in those moments that we struggle to understand who God really is, we cannot doubt who God is. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly taught not just in the New Testament, but it really began in the Old Testament. And so while this is not going to be a complete uh, overview of the doctrine of the Trinity, I do want to focus on two concepts of the Trinity that are very vital for you and I as it pertains to biblical unity. The first truth that we need to grasp is this, that all members of the Trinity are in fact equal. We see the concept of the Trinity introduced in Genesis chapter 1. It's the sixth day of creation. God is making Adam. And he says, and let us make man in our image. And so we see the, the plural language used there to introduce us to the doctrine of the Trinity. Of course, we also see it even earlier in creation. God the Father is speaking creation into existence. The Spirit is hovering over the waters. And in Colossians 1, we see that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So all three members of the Trinity were present and working there in creation. Father, Son, and Spirit. But we also see not only that they are three, but ultimately that there is one God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
And so we understand that the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity are in fact equal because they are all in fact God. We see the most common title for the Holy Spirit of being the Spirit of God. And John chapter uh, 14 and again in 16 we see Jesus saying that the Father is going to send the Spirit. And then in John 17 we see Jesus saying that He and the Father are one. So all three members here are in fact equal. But now what does that matter to you and I as believers in 2019? Well, it reminds us of this simple truth. That every person is created in the image of God. That we in God's eyes are equal. We're all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. That we all have an eternal redemptive value to God proven by the fact that Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross. And so all members, specifically bringing it into the church, all members of the church are in fact equal here. And we need to understand this. We see it John 17, 11, then 20 and 21 where he says, I pray that they would be one. This is united. Now for God to say that we are one means this, that they are the same heart and they have the same purpose. And this is our unity, that we are to have the same heart, the heart that loves God and loves others and has the same purpose, which is the building up of the kingdom of God. This is our unity. But the second principle of the Trinity to grasp this morning is this, though they are equal, they all have separate, distinct roles. Now, certainly, this applies to marriage. Men and women in marriage are equal in God's eyes, but they have separate, distinct roles. But let's talk about the Trinity here in terms of salvation. What the Bible reveals is this, that salvation, saving the lost from their sin, was God the Father's plan before the foundation of the world. We see it in Ephesians 1. What that means is this, That before God said, let there be light, and there was light. Before Adam and Eve were created, before they rebelled against God, God knew that it was going to happen, and he already had a plan to meet their needs. And so I want that to encourage you this morning, that if you're coming in here with a heavy heart, something's weighing you down, and you're going, I don't know how this is going to work out. I want you to know this. God saw it coming before you even thought about it. And he's already got a plan on how to work it out. So our call is simply to trust in God. So salvation was God the Father's plan. Well, it was accomplished by God the Son. We celebrated the beginning of that plan just two weeks ago. Yo, when we celebrated Christmas. Yo, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. How do we know that God was with mankind and coming, pursuing mankind? Because he sent Jesus. Salvation was accomplished not in our works, but in the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And then the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was part of salvation because he confirms that we are saved. Now what does that mean? It means that if you are a true child of God, the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And because the Holy Spirit's living inside of you, he is changing you to make you more like Jesus. 
Now, how do we know that? Because of what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 and 29. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And those that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So what Paul is ultimately getting at in those verses is everything that's happening in your life and my life is for God's glory and ultimately for our good to make us more like Jesus. All three members were active in salvation. Again, it was the Father's plan accomplished by the Son confirmed by the Spirit. But what does that have to do with you and I? Well, let's allow the Apostle Paul to once again speak to us through Scripture. Romans chapter 12 says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So we're all one in that we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and our singular purpose is to build up the kingdom of God by making disciples. And now how do we do that? Well, we use the spiritual gifts that God has given us to the glory of God and the building up of his kingdom. And so what we understand is, yes, we are united in that Jesus is Lord, but he has given us different gifts to accomplish that same purpose, which ultimately means this. Nobody can say, I don't need you in a church. Every person who is truly born again has been given a spiritual gift, and therefore they are valuable to accomplishing God's purpose of saving the lost. So I need you and you need me. Because God has given everybody a spiritual gift, but nobody has all of the spiritual gifts. So there's a mutually dependent relationship that exists between believers because it also exists in the Trinity. We are many but we've been made one family with one Lord and one purpose. Biblical unity is not only a picture of the Trinity, but the second thing we see, this is in verse 12 of John 17. Biblical unity is only possible through a relationship with Jesus. Look there with me, verse 12. It says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. This teaches a a doctrine that has been debated for quite some time, but is actually very simple to deal with. If a person is genuinely saved, they can never lose that gift of salvation. Because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that saved us as sinners. And it is the same power that makes us one body. And those that Jesus saves, he has secured by his blood. Again, because salvation does not depend on our works, but rather on the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. And so this morning... Even if life is falling apart for you, 
If you are truly a child of God, you can rejoice because you are still and will forever be a child of God. And nothing in this life, nothing in this world can ever take that away from you. But biblical unity is only possible between two believers. Look at it again, verse 12. He says, I, those, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. See, verse 12 also teaches this. Not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is actually a follower of Jesus. That one who is lost, that son of perdition, is obviously a reference to Judas Iscariot. Now, what do we know about G- Judas? Well, we know this about Judas. He heard all of Jesus' messages. I mean, for three years, he walked with Jesus. He heard every sermon Jesus ever preached. Judas saw Every single miracle that Jesus ever did. Judas even participated in the ministry with Jesus. But Judas was lost. Because Judas didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And here's my greatest concern, especially in the church of America. It is entirely possible for a person to be Judas. Not to say that you're, den- that, that you're betraying Jesus. We know that that was fulfilled. But that a person could settle for religion instead of a relationship. That they could believe that they are somehow right with God because they go to church. Because they sing songs. Because they preach sermons. Because they give or they, they do all these things. You see, if your entire hope that you are saved is dependent on what you do, you're Judas. And you need to repent and come to Jesus. Because our works will never save us. They will never make us right with God. And so we need to understand what this means. Let me illustrate it this way. We're going to get interactive this morning. How many people here are UVA fans? Okay. How many of you are Virginia Tech fans? Okay. Now, guess what? UVA and Virginia Tech fans, they're not going to like each other. Let me ask it another way. How many of you here are Washington Redskins fans? All right. There's a few. How many of you are Dallas Cowboy fans? There's a prayer request. Um, All right. So you got Skins fans, you got Cowboys fans. All right, now let's take it a little step further. How many UVA fans are also Redskin fans? All right. How many UVA fans are also Cowboy fans? How many Hokie fans are Redskin fans? Okay. How many, you guys are playing right into my point, thank you. How many Hokie fans are Cowboy fans? All right, there's one proud one, two proud ones, okay. 
This is a demonstration of worldly unity. You see, UVA fans would be united because they don't like tech fans. But if all of a sudden I go, okay, I want my UVA Redskin fans over here and my UVA Cowboy fans over here, well, guess what? People who were working together are now going to be divided and no longer working together. And this is really a picture of the unity that the world offers us. The unity that the world offers says this, I will like you and work with you as long as we agree on everything. But the second we don't agree on everything, I'm out of here and I don't like you and I'm going to try to destroy you. But biblical unity says this, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I have been saved by grace. And if you have that testimony, then you are my brother and my sister. And there is not a force in this world, nor is there a force in hell that is strong enough to break the bond of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between what the world offers and what Jesus offers. And we have to keep that picture in our minds here. The world says, I'll work with you on some things, but not all things. Spiritual unity says, because you're a brother or sister, I'm going to work with you, even though I disagree with you on some of the lesser things. And we're going to come back to those lesser things in just a little bit. Because we have the same Lord, we have the same purpose. And I'm going to work with you to accomplish that purpose because it's bigger, better, and stronger than what would divide us. And only true believers can pull in the same direction. But what are we to do with these truths? I want to give you two that are on your outline, then a third one that's not there. The first one I would say is this. We need to evaluate our life. What does your life and your relationship with others reveal about your relationship with God? Are you a person who keeps the main thing the main thing. Now, what do I mean by the main thing? That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That there is one God, that this is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God, that all men are sinners, that there's only one way to be saved. There's about five core truths that are the main thing, that we cannot give any room of compromise on. Because if we do not agree with those things, then we're not walking in the same direction because we're not walking with the same God. So do you keep the main thing the main thing? Or are you a person who gets bogged down by secondary issues? Now I can already hear you thinking, well, what are secondary issues? I'm glad you asked. I'll give you a few. When is Jesus going to return? That's a secondary issue. The timing of the rapture doesn't or shouldn't divide the body of Christ. Because I'm going to tell you something. Whether you believe Jesus is coming back pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, if you're not ready for his return, it doesn't really matter because you're headed to hell whenever it happens. Don't let that thing divide you. Okay? Um, what's another secondary issue? Ah, sign gifts. 
All right? Uh, should we be speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues, faith, and he, uh, healings, and miracles, and, and all of those things? Again, those things will not save you. Don't waste time, energy, and effort that could be spent on sharing the gospel with debating these little things that don't really matter. I'll give you another one. This is probably the most controversial I'll give you all day. Worship style. Doesn't matter. Now, by the way, here's what happens when we start walking in worldly unity. We blame other people. Well, you know, if that group would just, if they would just give a little bit, then then we would be fine. And the other group's going, well, you know, we've given, but you're not giving. Can I tell you something? If, If at any time you are on the opposite ends of extreme, you are the problem on secondary issues. I understand that's pretty in your face, okay. But it's necessary. Because what Satan wants to do is distract us. Because if Satan can distract us, then we won't keep the gospel at the forefront. And more and more people will die and slip into an eternity of hell having never heard the truth that could save and change their life. And when he distracts us, then he can divide us. For those of you who are married, how's your relationship with your spouse? You got kids at home, maybe grandkids or, or other, you know, family area. How's your relationship with your family? How you get along with other church members? Now, don't be deceived here, church. You cannot believe that you are right with God if you are not right with other people. If your horizontal relationships are not right, it is because your vertical relationship is not right. Now, how do I know that? Because what John writes in 1 John 4, he says, if a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar and the truth isn't in him. For how can you love God who you have not seen but hate your brother whom you have seen? See, our relationships with others are a reflection of our relationship with God. Now, again, there are probably people here who are going, well, you don't know whoever. You're right, I don't. But I do know this, it takes two to tango. Jesus said, first, remove the plank from your eye so that you can see clearly, and then remove the speck from your brother's eye. Very few times... Very few times is it truly one person's fault. It's almost always a mixture of both. So do you need to go apologize to somebody? Do you need to go ask forgiveness of somebody? Put another way, do you need to forgive somebody today? Now, I'm not saying they didn't hurt you. I'm not saying that they weren't wrong or that you weren't wrong. I'm just saying, do you need to release them from that debt? Because I want to share this with you. Forgiveness is not based on the other person. Forgiveness is not based on whether the person deserves you to forgive them. Forgiveness is not even based on whether they have asked you to forgive them. 
Forgiveness is solely based on the fact that God has forgiven us of all of our sins. And and, and so if God has forgiven everything that you and I have done against Him, then how can I hold somebody else in such a little debt? Because I can promise you this. Nobody will have done anything worse to me than what I have done to my Savior. It was my sin that brought Jesus to this earth. He died because of our sins. And so, you need to forgive somebody today. You just need to release them from that debt and at the same time lift that two-ton boulder off your shoulders. The third one that's not in the outline, it's not on the screen, is this. Use your gift. Again, I'm going to go back to this. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are a child of God, then He has given you a gift that is to be used for His glory and the building up of His kingdom. And every gift is valuable. The pastor is not more important than the worship team. They are not more important than deacons. They are not more important than Sunday school teachers. They are not more important than the people who take time to clean God's house. What you do is a reflection of your gratefulness of what Jesus has done for you. And so are you using your gift to glorify God and to build up his kingdom. Now, this one is on the outline. It'll be on the screen. It is this, rely on the Holy Spirit. See, walking in biblical union is only possible if you've got a relationship with Jesus. If you're here this morning, you're struggling with anger, bitterness, hatred, or division. Allow God in this moment to speak to you on that issue. Not about the other person, but about you. You see, when you and I struggle to forgive when we walk around bitter and, and just envious and hold grudges, that says more about our heart than it does about the other person. And it may be that God is revealing that to you for this purpose. He's trying to say, you're not one of mine yet. Because his children walk in the unity that he gives, which requires love grace, mercy, forgiveness. But if you're going, I've talked to God and he's confirmed that yes, I'm, I'm one of his, but I'm really struggling with, with whatever or, or whoever, then you need to ask the Holy Spirit to come alongside you and, and help you. Help you learn to love. Because as we love God, it will overflow into a love of other people. But we've got to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit and not ourselves. Because we can't do this. What comes natural to us is bitterness, envy, anger, hatred, 
and grudges. What's of the Holy Spirit is a unity that's based on a relationship with Jesus and that walks in grace and forgiveness. So I'm just going to ask you this. Is your relationship with other people revealing that you don't have a relationship with God? If so, start crying out to God now. He will forgive you. I promise you, you have not sinned. You have not gone so far that the grace of God cannot meet you where you are and begin to change you. But you got to own it. Are you doing your part in maintaining the unity that God has given us for the glory of God and the building of His church? Or do you need to get along with God? Are you using what He has given you for His glory in the building up of His kingdom? Or do you need to confess that? However, we need to respond this morning. Let's respond together to God. Would you stand as we're going to pray together? Father, as we move into another time of this service, it's still part of worship. And arguably, it is the most important time of worship. And it's the most important because it's the time in which we respond to you. In light of who you are, according to what we have sang this morning, in light of who you are, according to your word that we have studied this morning, what are you saying about us? How do we need to respond to you? Is it that we need to trust you finally for salvation? Do we need to grant forgiveness and seek reconciliation in relationships? Do we need to start using the gifts that you have given us? Father, however you have spoken, maybe it's in an entirely different way this morning, but however you have spoken, God, I pray that we would simply respond to you, that we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to sing uh, one final song, Take My Life and Let It Be. If you need to respond to God, this is the time. You could pray up here. I'll pray with you. Pray at the front pew, but let's respond and worship together.